Hello. In this episode of Airs for Architecture, Flora Samuel, Professor of Architecture at the Cambridge University, speaks about her book, Housing for Hope and Wellbeing, published by Routledge in January this year. I think that spiritual experience is completely excluded from architectural culture. And I think that this is in, in this day and age, although there's definitely a change happening. And I think that this is very excluding of many, many different kinds of peoples who do uh, adhere to some spiritual framework in their life. Um, so I think this, this sort of totally unspiritualness of architectural culture is actually on bordering on getting quite racist in some ways and can be very, very negative for experience of student architects and things like that. A is for Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space. Hello and welcome to another episode of A's for Architecture. I'm talking today to Flora Samuel. Um, Professor, would you introduce yourself, please? Oh, hello there. Um, yes, so I'm Flora Samuel. My official role in life is Professor of Architecture, 1970 at Cambridge uh, University, um, which is a, a special role in that it was its first incumbent was Leslie Martin, and then it was um, uh, Bill Howe, and then it was Collins and John Wilson, and then it was Peter Carolyn, and then it was Alan Short, and then it's me. So it's it's a sort of role with a history where you talk about who had it. So I look forward to being part of the historical layers of the role. Um, and th- things seem to be done a bit differently in Cambridge, so, so that's what it is. So you were, you, you've been at Reading for how long? Because you're at Reading, and you were. I was reading your biography on the on the Cambridge Architecture website about your the announcement of your your uh, becoming chair um, there. And um, how long were you at Reading for? Um, <clears throat> I've been at Reading for seven and a half years. I oh. went there to start a new new school of architecture, um, which is a very industry led, practice research led school of architecture. And before how that, that, before, how does that at, go on? Sorry, sorry. Yeah. No, no, it's just before that I was at head at Sheffield. Uh-huh. Um, and so that, I mean, I've learned so much in all the different roles. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. I bet. I'm, it must be quite an exciting opportunity. Did you, so where did you study? You studied and you studied to be an architect. You're not a theorist. You're not a historian. No, no, I'm an architect. Um, I well, I did. I studied at Cambridge myself, and I absolutely hated it, and was very critical of the whole thing. I think that's possibly what got me into architectural education. Yeah. Um, um, I went to Princeton for a while, and that was likewise really difficult. Um, what was so bad about it? This yeah. was in the 1980s. Yes, I mean, I asked myself, was it me or was it the place? It was real me too, gen- me too time, you know, it was really exploitative and strange times. Mm. And postmodernism was architecture was not, you know, it was, it was a really dismal time for architecture, postmodernism and high tech. Mm. I personally found it. Um, <clears throat> and at Princeton, it was all, it was with Michael Graves and it was all very, very his idea of an insult with one of my projects was describing it as looking like an alto. That was an insult. And that was painful to me if somebody had been brought up as, you know, alto is God, really. Um, yeah, so it was, it was a weird and strange time uh, to be training as an architect and to be a female training as an architect too. Yeah, I imagine. I Well, 
sort of vaguely can imagine. I um, so so you went to work in practice after that. Yeah, I worked for a while in in, in practice, not tremendously long in um, refurbishing uh, council estates. Well, that was the time when Mrs. Thatcher was starting to sell them all off, so it was making privatizing chunks of them I guess yeah. and then also the kind of gold tap variety of uh, domestic work for very rich clients um, and I had a little practice of my own for a little while but it's all incredibly difficult and then I had my first daughter it just being in practice is just grim um, uh, so yeah at that it was that I mean, the thing that got me really going back to, uh, um, I got a little gig working at South Bank, which was women into architecture. Um, sort of, uh, it was kind of an access program and it was really fascinating. And I was trying teaching history on that and discovered how, oh my goodness, you know, the history I've been taught was so inappropriate to a bunch of women who were going into architecture from all sorts of diverse backgrounds. So that really fired me up. So all of that got me out of practice and, and back into academia. I love learning anyway, so that's great. Um, but it's a kind of lovely segue into why we're talking today, which is this rather fabulous book that you've written, Houses for Hope and Wellbeing, um, which is uh, published uh, published this year. Published this year or the end of last year? Oh, it was actually published about on the 20th of December last year. There you go. Christmas yeah. present time. Um, it was, it's um, a really beautiful book, but I, I um, because, and it's a really timely book, I think. And I've been thinking about it a lot over the last while in relation to, in a weird kind of way, my own situation. So I have a young family and, you know, I teach at university and I have, lots of education, as much as you can get, almost. Um, and I live in a house that was built for Victorian workers, and it's very mm. small. Mm. And it seems a bit weird. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's a very nice house. They're very well designed. They're very, like, they're built like the worst construction ever. As soon as you take the lath and plaster down, you're just left with a kind of, sea of bricks and incredibly powdery mortar but they are very you know it's a great shape but it's small and i think a lot of us find ourselves in this condition now if we're lucky enough to get a house at all we find ourselves in a condition where it really isn't appropriate for stage in life for in a weird kind of way the effort we've put in i know that sounds incredibly envious but certainly it doesn't uh, isn't conducive for many people to these two amazing sort of like um, overlapping concepts of well-being and hope that you that you touch on. So I was just wondering if we could start by if if you could tell me about or tell us about the the motivations behind this book. Where does it come from in your own um, research and what drives it? Yes. Well, um, <clears throat> I mean, the book is really a manifesto, um, and there, there are three things that. Uh, really inspired me to write it and um, I, I completely relate to all the things you were saying I mean I think there is an underlying well four things I mean I suppose my my role, role as activist in my own community and seeing how um, 
how um, powerless the community is to have any sort of impact on their places, um, mm. how unjust the whole system is, really. But um, I wanted, I, th I think I never understood, and I used to wonder to myself, why is it? I just don't understand what housing is. I don't understand the housing delivery journey. There are all these black holes and mysterious places in it mm -hmm. that I just haven't got a clue about. And I've been in this business a long time. So I just wanted to sort of um, um, describe the complexity and obfuscation of the whole housing delivery journey mm -hmm. uh, so that people could actually start understanding it and critiquing it and getting angry about different parts of it mm -hmm. because there's so much in it to get angry about so they can demand improvements and I think yeah the other one is I mean my I, my research is um generally around this thing of social value loosely speaking well-being um and uh I've worked in housing research a long time and it's completely dominated by economists I mean in line with the fact that we live in a very monetary value-based system neoliberal system so I wanted to to get to explore and get across the thing that um, there are other kinds of value than money. Uh, and actually, even those other kinds of value, if you use them properly, probably have a lot of monetary value in their, in their own, mm. in their own way, you know, giving people terrible housing obviously has huge knock on effects on the national health system, but it has, it's a different budget and a different bunch of people leading it. So it was one thing about, um, offering resistance to housing's obsession with economic value really mm -hmm. um and i and i just also wanted to write a book about housing that wasn't terribly dusty and well yeah just terribly i just wanted to write a book that in, i want to explore i've always wanted to write one of these kind of um non-fiction for a general audience it's very hard for an academic to get in a gig in that zone mm. um, so i'm starting to explore more around per personal observation personal thoughts and feelings as well in 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 the narrative as i went along so i wanted to write a book that people who from a bigger diversity of backgrounds than would well quite a big diversity of backgrounds might see themselves in it somewhere mm rather than just ignored or not mentioned. So, yeah, I wanted to write a book that was more in, about housing that was a bit more inclusive than the usual one. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that comes over very much. And I like this use of this word manifesto. And I, it does feel like a manifesto. Um, it's, there's a huge amount of data, which is data that people can access themselves. That's, that's used to underpin it. And that, I think, is... It is really good. It's not a sort of bank of kind of speculative data produced through obscure research methodologies necessarily, but it's kind of a collation of a number of points bringing together. And it, so it has that kind of energy about it. And you're right. I'm, I think it does read like a, doesn't read like an academic. I mean, it's obviously very academic. God, you get yourself into sticky situations when you're trying to compliment people, but trying yeah, to... I'm happy not to be academic, really. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it, I mean, because the crisis to hand, so the book is split into these two sections, really, isn't it? It's a book of two halves. It's describing the condition and then describing a possible alternative and looking and describing the kind of green shoots of that alternative emerging. Yes, that's a good way of describing it. I spend very little time on the problems because everybody knows them so well. It's more about the green shoots. Yeah, and so it has that 
But I, I, I said, I said in my notes to you that it was quite, it felt quite modernist in that way, and I think that's quite interesting that you get, you get, you study under Michael Graves, sick and tired of postmodernism, and produce something that has this kind of feel of an early twentieth century, well, not early twentieth, mid twentieth century um, text, which is like they often did, people. Uh, from that period, architects from that period had that has that feeling of a kind of social um, obligation about it, like it's trying to do something. Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, I was thinking about what you said about that, and um, I mean, modernism is so misrepresented, I and mean, this is why I wrote five books on Bukobuzir to try and sort of put the record right on him, but a little bit. Um, uh, I think, um, I mean, look, Bouzier was beginning to get into consultation and um, diversity in his work. I wrote a book on him being a feminist because he was. He was very, he was very interested in that stuff. Um, but they didn't have, you know, what we have now, which is access to data, um, and there wasn't this wide recognition of the incredible importance of recognizing um different people's subjectivities in the way that you move forward so a lot of i suppose modernists and they didn't have the techniques to uncover those things as well i mean one of the ideas behind the book is it's not as difficult as it was to find out what impacts on it well-being it used to be really difficult but there's a sort of cohesive and growing body of stuff that really you know we can build on mm -hmm. so what does that stuff like modernism in that it's ide idealistic i say that it believes in a better future i believe in a, uh, that a better future is possible but it's it's different because it's got around data and it's around diversity and it's around co-production i would say which is a bit distinct around co-production yeah well more around um yeah co-production of environments but it's about ultimately, I mean, the, the, the underpinning of it is this idea of the capabilities approach that if you maximize people's ability to expand their own capabilities, what their, their potential is, you know, what they want to be. Um, that is the sort of underpinning idea that that's what we need to do. We need to maximize people's capabilities so that they can um, develop into their fullest and best selves, in a sense. So the idea, <clears throat> gosh, I don't want to. Um sort of uh, sum it up in a tweet, but the, but the idea is, is that through better design of systems of governance, including planning and so on, and also of design, uh, we would create, so we would create a kind of framework which enabled communities to better participate in the production of their homes in the kind of Eleanor Ostrom co-production kind of way. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. I wouldn't want to overplay the role. Well, back in the 70s, our modernist architects got so attacked for being determinist, for overclaiming that um, the impact of the built environment on um, people's lives. And undoubtedly, having enough money to eat is more important than having a nice house. But I think we can also underplay the importance of our environment and um, our neighbourhoods, because particularly in the way that they enable connection with other people. If you're looking back to the capabilities approach, if just enabling people to connect with somebody different can radically change somebody's whole way of life yeah. um, and open up new avenues that they never thought were possible. So, yeah, I don't want to overplay what the built environment can do, but 
so much of the built environment stopping all of this, stopping people being their, you know, what they would like to be or what they would like to do. Or could you give um, an example of this? Uh, could you give an example, perhaps, of? I think I think when when architects speak of this, I think other architects hear them uh, talking about volume house built suburbia, hmm. um, which is an obvious case in point. Um, in a way, car dependent communities which um, militate against uh, sociality and so on. But are there examples in cities where this is going on as well? Is it is it is it uniquely a suburbanite problem, or is it? Is it a generalized problem? Is it a sort of, is it entirely to do with the procurement of buildings? Like, doesn't really matter where you build them. The procurement ensures that this kind of unhealthiness is evident within them. Um, yeah, I think it's, I mean, you know, we have a, a loneliness um, pandemic, as it's been called. Um, so, uh, wherever you are, I think this, this situation arises and procurement mm. is not set up to make good places for people in any shape or form, or particularly the planning um, system is not is not set up for them. So, yeah, it can happen anywhere. So what the, what is it do you think about the planning system specifically? If we're taking a kind of co-productive view of it, what is it about the planning system that you understand well that is problematic well i mean the planning system's completely broken as a plan you know the royal town planning institute done many reports about this they're just at the coal face of just trying to get um it's a bit like going to the doctor at the moment you know you can't get a in time or any sensible decision nobody's got any or very few people have got any design training they're not being strategic they've they've been cut and cut and cut and cut to the absolute bone there is no strategy well, no strategy very little strategic activity going on and they haven't managed to up, um grade themselves in the light of the potential of of, of digital um tools notably mapping um so um i make the case in the book that um Planning is pretty arbitrary at the moment because they don't. Nobody has an evidence base of what's actually there already, mm. um, and you couldn't ever level up truly because you haven't got a clue what's there in the first place. And I think that there are forces at work. I mean, if you read Guy Shrubsole's book, Who Owns Britain, for example, and people don't necessarily want you to know what's there. Um, but in all my research work that we're doing. Uh, trying to make transparent maps so you can actually see what's there in the world as a basis of decision making and we're trying to do this digitally through digital maps so that maybe one day that they could actually aspirations and desires of people could um flow be operationalized through the planning system because at the moment they're not there's virtually no consultation no. Uh, you're lucky if three percent is a really high level of engagement on a um uh a consultation and within that three percent nobody will have looked at whether that what what backgrounds can come from if it's representative or anything like the consultate it, it's completely non-existent mm -hmm. uh, and this is another research project we're doing it's very very flawed so there really is very little way for people to meaningfully engage with the planning system so the planning system's cut to the bone very little democracy within the planning system and very little investment in the planning system and 
we're not working with objective measures, so it becomes arbitrary, really, at the end of the day. Yeah. Now, I've noticed this myself, in the particularly around issues of consultation participation. When I was talking to the uh, retired Professor Henry Sanoff, who's written a lot of books on participation, and yeah, it's a most obscure... I mean, it's totally unmeasured. It's, an, exactly. it's, it's a system without any metrics. Like, how on earth is one to know... Uh, is anyone to know whether it's any good? All you have to do is do it. And everybody goes, hooray, we did it. And, you know, it, it's most bizarre. It's, if, if I was a cynical man, I would say they're doing it on purpose, that it's advantageous to keep participation at arm's length in this way, that sort of declawing of Sherry Arnstein's um, ladder of citizen participation. But... I do. I'm really kind of interested in how you go from being an architectural historian, which is, I assume, what this work of on Le Corbusier comes from, into this activist. Is this a natural progression? Because you don't see many architectural historians getting their hands dirty in kind of political action like this. Well, I think it's a real opportunity for architectural historians to start. I mean, I, I love that Raina Bannum term, the historian of the immediate future. Mm -hmm. Where does history, history end and post-occupancy evaluation begin? I, I think that there's desperate need for um, histories of practice, not just practice, but also how their business models, their diversity, mm -hmm. how they work themselves. So there's, anyway, I think there's a big opportunity for historians. The whole thing, um, so there I was merrily chucking out books on Le Corbusier, which I was, it was fun to do, but um, uh, um, and then a really, really terrible building. I live in Cardiff. A really terrible building was built at the end of my road, and I um, um, complained to the uh, to the council, and they sent me uh, my complaint to the architect. And the architect wrote back saying, "Good design costs money," and this was a huge turning point for me because I think good design creates value, mm. all manner of value, and. Um, and then it got me to talking to people, my friends, uh, people doing their house extensions and to see how poor how people just don't value architects at all. They don't see the value of good design. They don't get it. It's really obscure and difficult to understand. And it got me onto a whole journey around how architects talk about what they do and how and how they communicate with uh, non-architects. And so I... I had a project on the cultural value of architecture, which morphed into a project on how architects do research on housing. And then that morphed into one on how architects demonstrate their value. And then it's morphed into more recent work on social value and consultation. So it's, it's been very exciting and fun. I can't, it's, 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 I see myself as, um, um, an, uh, an academic integrator. I'd like join things up that don't normally talk to each other. I, I, that's a good question, though, and one that I've often wondered about. Were Le Corbusier's buildings quite expensive? Was the was the Unité Marseille, for example, was that actually proportionally expensive to other social housing kind of models? And would it? How would it compare to social housing these days? Well, exactly. These are such super fascinating questions, that I mm -hmm. think, or, uh, historians. How can you really say this building's better than that when if it was 40 times more expensive? Um, you know, and the Scottish Parliament uh, springs to mind. Mm. I was always on the lookout for information about costing. I found it very, very hard. I, one thing I did discover was that Ronchamp, to build Ronchamp, they had to cut down an entire forest to build Ronchamp, the formwork for Ronchamp. Yeah, so that wasn't good. But then sustainability wasn't. So there were other 
other architects working that time, making literally making churches out of old bed springs and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, Le Corbusier was aware of them, but he felt that his what he was up to was so important that it needed that effort could, because he was trying to reorient religion around a sort of more feminine, um, more balance of male and female. Um, mm. uh, and so it needed a bit of a bit of drama. But you have to think about Ronchon. It was actually built out of sort of penny selling community shares. You know, people don't talk about that. That's to me, that's super fascinating, selling community shares to make a building like that. And they mm. all believed in it enough to build that building from community shares. Mm. So I don't know about the cost of unity, and believe me, I've tried, and I wish historians would write these things and tell us, you know, mm. it's so good. But um, to go back to the book, you, these these two themes of hope and well-being, they're very interesting because they're one of the things, I was doing some research, a little research project with the British Academy on how, on whom making during COVID. And it's an ongoing little project that I've been working mm. on, a bit of a nightmare, to be honest, because... Mm. Um, everybody was locked in their homes. So doing an ethnography around homemaking became quite tricky. Um, but, but one of the things that I noticed was that there is very little written about home as home, that you get a lot of work in architecture, the glossies, which are about glorious houses for very rich people, or you get sexy books on mass housing that looks good when photographed with a wide-angled lens and you get the contrast right. Um, And, you know, there's one or two architects featured, the Smiths and so on. But actually trying to describe the the experience of home from the perspective of the, the dweller, of the resident, I found very difficult to find. There's very little there. Uh, is that would you agree i mean you you're obviously quite the specialist um or was i looking in the wrong place well no no i think you absolutely agree i mean one of the chapters in the book the perhaps the chapter in the way i'm most proud of is about housing knowledge Mm. and um, the difference, so you get social scientists doing uh, doing their thing you get architects doing their thing very rarely do they talk to the social scientists um um and you know there are various sectors who have housing knowledge and very you have uh, one sector that's deeply um missing from the housing debate is is art the arts and humanities and literature mm. and, and i mean you know famous examples like rachel right rachel white reed's house you know it's that the home is such a central part of art and um literary output but we don't think about that stuff as part of talking about housing um and let alone capturing people's own experience of their own homes. Maybe that's the territory of anthropologists and ethnographers um, to some extent. But no, I, I think it, uh, it's a really, well, it's a very slippery subject, isn't it? It's one about which we all intimately know a lot from our own lived experience, but has um, been very poorly studied. I mean, one of the reasons that housing, the experience of housing has been so poorly studied is because it's... Um, very difficult to make comparisons. You can never compare one bit of housing with another because they're all they're always everything is different. Mm. Um, so it's a it's not tidy like hospital or something like that if you actually wanted to study the experience yeah. of home. But you do, I mean, you make this case and you start the book talking about housing studies and how housing studies became sort of dominated by an economistic mindset or a technic technical mindset through various departments and, and through the decades of the late 20th century. 
But you present this, and, and you've mentioned this already, this, this idea in, in that uh, chapter on housing knowledge, um, you criticize that period. You say, suffice to say, this was a time when natural processes were artificially separated out from, the, from spiritual experience and phenomena. Mm. Um, and yeah, the enlightenment in inverted commas excluded forms of knowledge that didn't fit mold. And I, I think, so I think this is quite an interesting idea. And the, this, these words, hope and well-being, kind of fit within that. They are words of, about the human spirit. I, well, am I right to think that they are, your, your orientation is towards sort of trying to present a, a method for measuring the, the human spirit value of housing rather than just like condensation, mold, ventilation? Um, I mean, yeah, if we were, if we were, society wasn't what it was, you wouldn't need to measure any of this. We would all know that decent housing was what we all need and, and it mm -hmm. would be happily achieved. Yeah. But we live in a system where everything has to be measured. And I have a sort of feminist thinking behind my work, which is that you have to quantify and demonstrate things in order for them to be recognised. And then as soon as they have been recognised, you dissolve the quantification and the categories because you know that quantification and categories never really work. So there's um, so there's a thing behind it around around making these things present. Um, I very I th I think that spiritual experience is completely excluded from architectural culture, and I think that this is. Uh, in 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 this day and age, although there's definitely a change happening, there's a change in the air, um, and I think that this is very excluding of many many different kinds of peoples who um, do uh, adhere to some spiritual um, framework in their life. Mm -hmm. um, so I think this this sort of totally unspiritualness of architectural culture is actually on bordering on getting quite racist in some ways and can be very very negative for experience of student architects and things like that yeah people like that uh, um so i think there's a real case for acknowledging some people's um spiritual lives mm -hmm. talking about housing um i talk about eudaimonic well-being which for me is um um, it's the highest form of well-being. It's known to be the highest form of well-being. It's the it's the well-being you feel when you feel that you're part of something bigger than yourself. That there's some purpose in things. That they're not completely arbitrary and you're being buffeted about on the winds of fate. Mm. So yeah, there is, and, and hope is a word that is fundamentally religious because it does not religion, not religion in formalized religion, but it's from, it's a belief that there is some order to something and, and things are going in a particular direction. So I put it in there really as a provocation on, on those fronts, because uh, I think that we have to recognise people's spiritual experience. I think, you know, physics, everything is showing that the world is not what we think it is. Um, and deep ecology and, and you know, people seeing incredible um, feeling of connection with the with the natural world. So, yeah, so it's a provocation, that word, but it's it is um, also um I'm very influenced by Rebecca Solnit, who's written a lovely book, Hope in the Dark, and, and she talks about micro-utopias, just little moments of love and care that happen in the world. Um, you know, we have to give attention to those things. Um, so it is, it's, um, 
the idea behind the book is is that it, we can be working for something better, something ethically better. And I think I felt I've, as an architect, somebody who's been in architectural education for 30 years or so, I think when we've got this climate change emergency that we have now, and this is a social justice issue, I cannot countenance people doing PhDs on scrumple bits of paper that they redraw and then they scrumple it again and they redraw it again, or other PhDs I've seen which have been musical notations that nobody can understand except for the PhD uh, writer. I think there's self-indulgence there. We just don't have space for it right now. But that's my own personal uh, uh, ethos. No, I think that's really... I think that's really... Um... I think it's true, but I think <clears throat> I think there's something really wonderful in what you're saying about this idea of because I've got a lot, I've been having a lot of conversations with my wife about this um, book and this word eudaimonia eudaimonia. Um, she's a philosophy graduate, and she introduced me to this idea many years ago, and. It's always been something that sat in the back of my my head. This so to to find this idea of eudaimonic housing in your book was really quite lovely, um, uh, really quite fascinating idea. But I, I was I was thinking about this, um, yeah. So these values of hope and well being are part of a kind of would you say part of a kind of um, decentering of architectural knowledge away from its modernist, postmodernist privileging of a certain, let's be honest, male and largely speaking Western European and American kind of knowledge base. It's about if we if we if we start thinking of architecture through frameworks like hope, um, which is a virtue, or well-being, which is complex and situated, then we're going to be able to resituate architecture in a way that it will satisfy more people more of the time yes yes i mean yes well done for summarizing a very complicated issue i think that's right i think that's right um and it's not that um um you know people do talk a lot about participatory architecture blah 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 and it's great but nobody really gets to the bottom of why is it good you know why mm -hmm. is it good and, and for me it comes back to the fact it's good for people to be able to develop into their own best selves, mm -hmm. have the opportunity to have to listen to their gut feeling about their journey in life mm -hmm. and where they need to be. And to sort of reflect upon their own motivations as well. I mean, that's one of the things about education, isn't it? Is that you pitch the, you pitch the knowledge back to the learner so that they have to reflect upon it and see where they stand in relation to it. So I guess the same goes for participatory design is that if you ask people what, stuff means to them what is its value then they have to in a way take ownership of that yes yes exactly exactly and that's an empowering thing i am um, yeah i mean this idea that i again i think it's quite a modernist idea but i think you've touched on this already this idea that good housing could produce well-being and hope. I think I, I did want you to talk a little bit. Like, could you give examples? Like, where 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 might we where might we encounter housing that does this? So, what does this look like? I mean, obviously, it's not one size fits all. Obviously, it's locational and and situated. But where might we see this? Is there good examples, or is there 
or are there examples of this starting to happen, the frameworks um, that will make this more likely to occur starting to be implemented? Yeah, well, I mean, I talk a lot about the co-housing uh, um, movement, uh, which is completely squished by the way that planning and policy work at the moment. But um, where you start seeing it working well, um, and we have done some sort of bits of study around it, 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 um, it does seem to start to deliver on this kind of thing. The only problem with co-housing as it stands is it's very it's very lacking in diversity because it's so difficult to get into. So it kind of appeals to a certain sector mm-hmm. of society. Um, and the level at which people are involved in the making of their housing, well, that's a, a very thorny problem. I've got PhD students working in that zone as well. Yeah. Because um, that has to be very carefully done. Um, so I think I think you will find, I mean, the cover of the book has got Marmalade Lane by Cambridge, which by all accounts, people are pretty happy there. Yeah. Um, but it's obviously a, a very affluent part of town. Um, I did wonder about that. I've never really dug around because, you know, it is visually pretty good, isn't it? And it makes you think, like, why why doesn't it happen more? So it's to do with these kind of barriers to inclusion that, as they're called these days, which is economics? Well, it is. I mean, I I talk in the book about my own journeys of trying to set up a community-led housing with my daughter and her friends and how... if it's not planning or land or, or mm-hmm. money, you know, you, it's <clears throat> it's impossible. It is pretty much impossible. And I'm just and, and 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 our group and many others are just sitting there waiting for the time that the the laws become more sensible around this zone that will actually allow people to get up and make their own homes and housing. Um, yeah, because things obviously just just work so uh, uh, badly for the moment. But I mean, there are. There are many examples, historical and more recent, of great housing that that really works. But we haven't done a, we, a lot. A strand of my work is on post occupancy evaluation, and on average, it's something like only six six percent of buildings or something like that ever get any attention. So we don't really know what housing works the best. That's the problem. So quite a lot of it has to be done um, sort of extrapolated. Mm. In some kind of way. So I couldn't categorically say to you that lilac in Leeds was actually making everybody a lot happier because, uh, well, actually, they probably have done studies of, on themselves. Um, but, you know, it's, you know, they're odd buildings, like, you know, apparently the Unité in Marseille was really fantastic during the pandemic. It was a great place to live and mm. did do research on that and showed that it really worked well for them. But the Unité in Marseille now has got a very kind of homogenous, well, relatively homogenous kind of group of people living in it so they're very complex issues these ones mm-hmm. um but it, for me it always comes back to giving people the best choice the best opportunity to be themselves and i mean our, the housing situation in britain we, there is no choice is there no. we're absolutely trapped so these two issues of well-being and hope are tied up with ideas of freedom and freedom is produced procured socially through democracy and you kind of present a kind of a mechanism for improving democratic engagement, for example, automation in planning. Is that is that kind of right? Is it is it about freedom? Is it about this kind of? It, does eudaimonia emerge from freedom? Eudaimonic well, housing. 
autonomy power of your play uh, is a is is recognized incredibly important uh, part of mm -hmm. well-being to feel in charge of your own destiny so to speak mm. um and um uh, planning certainly has a role to play with this. I mean, the way, yeah. I mean, my interest in maps and social value is that we're getting to a situation where more and more councils, for example, Newham are using participatory budgeting to make decisions about their places. Um, we're moving towards um, citizens' assemblies. Um, other, I think a feeling that representative democracy is not is 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 not working elected elected members are not working we have to find other ways of of making decisions mm -hmm. and i think uh while doing things if there are democratic i mean i'm not an expert on democracy this is a whole other sphere you know far be it for me to say this but yeah you know, i would know that if i felt that some kind of transparent and fair process had been gone through to get to a decision about something i would feel a lot better about all the injustices that have happened in my own neighborhood you know yeah i could see that i was actually the only outlier person who actually cared about something and actually people did want something different but then it, it it's all predicated on decent public information and and the public have no access to that at no. the moment no, no, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? I, I did a project, a postdoc in Glasgow, which was looking at new tenement housing, tenement style housing of that of that Scottish type, and and there were other case studies in Austria and Berlin. And the research assistant out there had the easiest job possible in Vienna, because he just went and typed in the names of the houses into their planning system. And all of the details, including all of the drawings, architects, dates, reviews, wow. media, everything was there. And there was me going around on my bicycle in Glasgow, finding these new you know, postmodern tenement housing, and then trying to engage with a planning system, which was unsearchable. Exactly. And, and so you're just left with this kind of completely skewed the research in a way, because... What the Glasgow wing of that research became was buildings that we can find stuff out about versus in Vienna and Berlin, the best buildings. Exactly. So I did a research project on, uh, well, part of a team working on why average housing is so bad in Britain and to some extent, and actually trying to find out about the housing development down your road is very, very hard. Mm. And there's so much churn in the construction industry. People have left. Um, they don't care. They design things because they know they're never going to be held accountable. And, and one of the things I say in the book is that, you know, we need a big, big plaques outside saying this was built by X. Mm. Uh, or And I think what I argue for a digital register. So every mm. house has its history, what was done to it so that the next person can sort of build into it. And ultimately, that digital register could combined with all the other ones and kind of give big data to the local authority on all manner of things so it can make more sensible decisions. But information is, I mean, partly because the private public division of things is just ridiculous. And, you know, an example of that is that nobody really knows what cables are running underneath the ground and um i think there's been a atkins have been charged with making a map of underground cables because they all sit with different organizations mm. nobody knows so it is really nobody knows and nobody cares and nobody will be around enough to be asked the question no. and anyway these have many of these i've discovered that 
a build life. You know, people talk about temporary architecture, but a build life can be as little as seven years these days. So what is, what is, how long should it, basic, we talked about basic levels of consultation. There aren't any, and that's one thing we're working on at the moment. But what is a basic expectation in terms of how long a house will last? Seven years. That was well. Yes, Severa was working well. That was the that was the shortest build life she'd come across. That they expected the building to be unfit for human habitation after seven years. Mm. I mean, that's worse than a moped. Um, <laughs> I mean, an obscure measure, but um, but that is interesting, isn't it? Because when you try and buy sell a car, if you haven't got all the documents, the price comes down massively. Exactly. exactly. And and um, it. It seems rather remiss, if uh, at, at best, that we wouldn't have the same kind of system in place, basically. You know, this is, that's a lovely idea of creating a diary or a kind of uh, a history of your building. It's a really elegant idea, and it would be very, very useful. Um, I, I was wondering how, whether, just to finish up, where you see how you, how might we, go about reframing education, architectural education, but also architectural practice in relation to an idea of hope and well-being as, um, as something to aim for that rather than just money. Like how do we do this? Like how, how do we start the conversation? And how do then we start implementing these things to undergraduates, not just to postgraduates. It's easy to persuade postgraduates of anything, but undergraduates are the ones where we've got to kind of win the battle. Partly because I think most students of architecture don't actually become architects. So we're sending them out into the world sort of, if we think we've got until they're, if we've got five years to teach them the truth <laughs> and they leave at three, then kind of, they're escaping before we've given them the punchline. Um, like how do we, how do we how do we invest young learners in this idea? Well, when we started the school at Reading, we did a sort of uh, we did a piece on education for uncertainty, and mm -hmm. um, I think we have to, uh, which was arguing for a, a, a res helping students to become researchers so that in a way whatever problem came their way they knew how to tackle it or had mm. some or who to ask at the very least yeah um i mean it's very interesting all the work on the ethics that's been going on in the riba recently because it taken to its logical extreme you would have an ethical duty to be producing help and help hope and well-being mm -hmm. with anyone that came 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 in your orbit of your practice um, um and I'm very. I'm, I'm waiting. The health. There's a health, healthy homes bill which is chugging through Parliament at the moment, and I mean, uh, if that got through, any all manner of things could change. But in terms of, I, I mean, I have a chapter in the book on um, professional transformation. Really, I believe that um, a lot. I think a lot of people leave architecture because, and I certainly got out of practice because it was. Well, I was in a, there in a recession because it was. I was vastly overtrained. A bit like you say, you know, Ambrose, you've been through. <laughs> you much and but actually architectural practice is incredibly mind-numbingly tedious and very very little intellectual content in there whatsoever um uh and 
research makes market structure practice so much more exciting, uh, research and innovation. Um, but what I, I, I think, so I think a lot of architecture will be automated, mm -hmm. humdrum and repetitive stuff, mm -hmm. automated. Um, and um, the rest of it will come, architects will be, have to become these people who um, choreograph these platforms for people to make their own things and to, to design their own things and to get involved in their own place making. So I think um, the Centre for Digital Built Britain calls these things ontologists, people who bring things together and, and help others to... to um, to do things themselves, so I think a lot there will be a lot more in 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 that zone. But I think there will also be architectural practice, which is incredibly um, um, what's, that? what's the word sensory, real, face to face, and personal, mm -hmm. and that nothing digital could ever do. And and architecture will be recognised as a kind of uh, experiential transformation. Um, work of people like Piers Taylor and Invisible Studios bring to mind there. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that there will be very different kind of things that architects are going to have to learn. Um, and, and potentially a bifurcational, maybe there'll be hybrid services around those areas. I wonder if the word architect will continue. I think that things will coalesce more around certain kinds of services that they do, mm -hmm. because they will be very specialised. And, and it's interesting, you know, people like Carl Turner architects changed their name to Turner Works because actually the word architect turns people off. Mm. Um, and so I think, yeah, it comes back to, I, I argue in the book that um, people need to get very, very familiar with financial systems. I mean, I think students really feel disempowered by the lack of financial knowledge that they have. To, to either become developers themselves or to help other organizations make things happen or to get money from um, uh, charities or research councils or whatever it is. I think, so I think understanding money is really, really important. Understanding data is really important to be able to um, use data in an effective way to counter the negative forces that we live in. Um, and I think, yes, because uh, they've certainly got the data. Yeah, well, they haven't. I mean, no, it's 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 not. It's they haven't got the data. No, it's a complete mess. The whole data, but there's a lot of work going on in Britain to get data in the right direction, so that we could actually correlate one bit with another and actually make a sensible decision out of it. Um, and then I think there's there's a <clears throat> something around working practices of architects that a, a decent we should ex be expecting a decent environment, decent working practices, um, decent hours, decent pay. Mm. Um, that that needs to be inculcated within schools, lack of exploitation and, and all these sorts of things. That's mm -hmm. a, a kind of different kind of working conditions. And I think you, know, you might say, who's going to pay for all of this, you know, going out into the world? But I do believe that um, banks and funders are really worried about social risk and unrest. Um, and they, there are a lot of people queuing up to invest their money in green, in green shares, green endeavours, um, all these kinds of things, community shares. And I think that there's, if we could only get... The banks and well they're already doing it banks and funders 
offer favorable rates of interest to, to environmental and, and sustainable and socially sustainable developments. But the data that those are truly sustainable and social is a bit flawed right now. Mm. I mean, we a golden thread that, yes, we are doing good projects. Our data shows that they're good and therefore you can fund us with confidence and that will get more money back into the mm. system to do good things, I think, ultimately. That's what I'm arguing. Mm. Because at the moment, it just doesn't work. Um, um, and, our, and architects and others are not making a very good case for why they are worth paying more and why they are worth bringing in, into the fold. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's something around, and I'm not an expert in finance, but I know there's an opportunity there for architects mm-hmm. um, and others if they were to get their brains around it and, and be clever. And mm-hmm. likewise, the planning system. I, I, I'm I very fond of an Anthony, Anthony Giddens quote, which is around constraints make you more creative. And I, I believe in student projects and everything that they, they do. Have you come across um, Alistair Parvin and, and Open Systems Lab who are working on, uh, through WikiHouse and through Architecture Zero Zero, it's another project of Architecture Zero Zero, looking at, um, yeah, exactly this idea of, of user interaction, citizen interaction with with planning through uh, open source software and things like that it's very it's very very fascinating but you also are setting up a, a um, an urban room in cambridge which is one of the areas i thought that do you see that as a mechanism for kind of starting to build a civic discourse from the very beginning around the value of the urban environment and and ultimately around the value of the home well yes that, i mean definitely um so there's a, a growing network of urban rooms across the UK. Mm-hmm. And when I was head at Sheffield, we set one up there. Was that the first one? No, it wasn't the first one, I don't think. It was one of, one of the first ones. I mean, mm-hmm. depends. But that's been going since 2016. Um, and for me, an urban room is a, a place for citizens or the public, um, university, practice, industry to come together and talk about the future of their places, really, and mm-hmm. do research together on the future of their places. Um, and so that in my uh, research work that we've been creating urban rooms in various places to experiment how best to how best people like to interact and people don't want to just interact digitally they want the face-to-face mm-hmm. environment um, for for talking and you know the real human interaction that that brings um, you, some people, times people say to me oh but what about architecture centres they were you know like that weren't they but I think architectures were directed at architects they were full of you know uh, books on architecture and um, um, I don't know things that architects like to buy, but this uh, the urban room is a very different and very uh, raw place really, and uh, to be developed together as as people want it to be. Mm. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. I um <clears throat> I think it's a very lovely book, and I'm very grateful. For, uh, very interesting. I think it might be a turning point. You talked earlier about there are green shoots and there are there is this growing movement for what you called a sensory architecture maybe this book i was saying to my wife this morning i don't know i don't know what paradigm shifts look like but maybe this is the beginning another part of the beginning of of this paradigm shift of of uh, of a new vo- a new form of architecture and a new form of practice a new form of education of architects which is hopeful 
Well, I think a lot of people are working in this zone, and I, that's what I wanted to bring a lot of examples of all people who are doing that. So it's, uh, it is, I, I think it is a real shift, and um, um, I think we need to make it known. And I think there's a hunger for it amongst our, our students as well, because, you know, they're very committed to these issues too. Fabulous. What a lovely point to finish on. Thank you very, very much, Flora. Thank you very much indeed, Amrose. Great talking with you. A manifesto and a mood. Great stuff from Flora. Thank you to her and to Routledge for the ebook. It's an excellent read. A call to arms, in truth, for greater care. Have a look at the podcast description, where there are links to it, buy it and learn, and to other stuff Flora has done and is involved in, and her professional and social profiles. And please do share this episode. And thanks for listening. Cheers.